Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Refold Podcast, where we talk about all things language learning. My name is Clayton, also known as George Pig, and I manage the community here at Refold. This week's guest is Bell. You may recognize them from their YouTube channel, The Philological Bell. They are doing a PhD in ancient languages, and they already speak two, Latin and Anglo-Saxon. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hey, Bell. Again. Huh? All right. I am so happy to have you on. Uh, do you want to go ahead and give yourself like a brief introduction? Oh, goodness. Hi. Um, so I'm Belle. I uh, have a YouTube channel where I do analyses and such of medieval languages. I'm currently finishing my PhD in Old English Literature. Um, I commonly tell people that I'm obsessed with languages, but I only speak two to any high degree, which is Latin and Old English. Um, and I use those to the best of my ability. And I'm very excited to be here on the Refill podcast. All right. So what specifically <laughs> do you do? What specifically do I do? Mm -hmm. So you are a student of like uh, ancient languages um, and you're not a linguist, right? No, I am not. So the vast majority of people who produce content about medieval languages, particularly medieval European languages online, are coming at it from a background in linguistics. I do not have that background in linguistics. My bachelor's was in anthropology and archaeology. My master's was in medieval studies, which is more like just learning the skills you need to read medieval manuscripts and the languages associated. And I'm doing my PhD under the English department, not the linguistics or history department. So I'm a lot more interested in the cultural meanings of these texts. I actually view my own academic work as a continuity of the anthropology that I was doing in my um, undergraduate days. So I used to tell people who didn't know what archaeology and anthropology was, I would tell them, well, my bachelor's is about um, dead and living people, respectively. And I basically view my work studying Old English literature for my PhD thesis as learning about the culture of the Anglo-Saxons from their literary records, basically. And so that's more of my, am I interested in the cultural and literary stuff there? All right. And, and what language are some, is a tool for that. Language is a tool for that. So you're not, you know, interested in dissecting the, uh, the differences between the dialects of Old English and, and such. Well, so that's something I'm starting to learn now. Now that I've gotten to a stage where I can read it pretty fluently, I want to get familiar with the different dialects, not because I find them super interesting in their own right, just because it's useful for me to be able to know if this text may have been coming from so-and-so place or if, if it had influence from so-and-so regions. And also because some words in Old English are distinguished only by a single letter or a single sound, uh, like in standard West Saxon, uh, which was the version of Old English that you get in most textbooks standardized by King Alfred. Um, the word for pale is a block, as it, with, a, with an R sound. And the word for um, black as in the color is black with the same, it's exactly the same as in modern English. And that one letter makes the difference. But in some dialects, it might be a different letter. You know what I mean? So I want to be able to identify when that's happening. So I'm more aware when I read texts. Yeah. So it's interesting that Old English had, even had a literary standard to me, you know, given the, the age of the language. And uh, I guess most people, they wrote in Old West Saxon. 
but I'm sure there is some stuff in other varieties. Or maybe you can sort of tell from the way a, uh, an author uses a word or spells something um, that something was written in originally in a different variety or influenced by a different variety. Yeah, so what you tend to get, because bear in mind, um, <clears throat> we have a lot of texts in Old English which were written centuries before the manuscripts were written down in. So Kinnewulf is a good example. Um, he's one of the few named Old English poets that we have, and his he was probably writing in something like the um, ninth or maybe 10th centuries, but many of the manuscripts that bear his poetry come from the um, 11th century. And we can tell this uh, from the way he uses certain words, which either alliterate or they have half rhymes in given northern dialects of Old English, but not in the southern dialects of Old English. So we can tell based on that. And that's one of the reasons why dialectical study is uh, very useful and important in philology in general and in Old English studies in particular. So what are some questions you get about your field of study? Like, what are some common questions that people come at you with? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so a lot of people ask if I'm studying like Shakespeare and that kind of stuff. And I always say no. Um, I study early Middle Ages. And that's, you know, Europe from roughly AD 500 to, in my specific case, AD 1100. But usually the cutoff mark is um, around 1000. And then the rest is a different period of the Middle Ages. And during those later periods, literature itself becomes quite different, especially because you get the rise of the Arthurian tradition and this whole chivalric literature, um, rhyming couplets, poetry, which is the bane of my existence. I really dislike it, um, just as a personal thing. And thankfully, blessedly, Old English poetry has rather little of that, and there's relatively little of it, except in Ireland, because they're awful, I'm kidding, um, earlier on in the Middle Ages. So... I'm safe in that regard. Um, but the point is, very different genres of literature and styles of literature. You have more of the epic poetry in the earlier periods, which I quite enjoy. So, yeah, what is it like, I guess, refolding? Because you've refolded. I know that you studied in school um, Old English, but if I recall, you originally kind of uh, BSed your way into it. You, you sort <laughs> yeah. of. Benny Lewis, your your old English ability, and to catch up with what you needed to do your your studies, to do your PhD, you started refolding old English. How was that? Yeah, so I guess I should explain the origin story of how I started doing my PhD. Um, I applied for what's called a funded PhD, so that's where you have a certain amount of money set aside, and you get like a free ride for your tuition and your board and everything. Um, and you're told to research a specific topic, and so I applied for that. I want it. And there were three requirements for the scholarship that I applied to. Um, that you have manuscript skills, which I had, that you have uh, fluent Latin, which I had at the time, and that you have fluent Old English, which I definitely did not have at the time. Um, I actually find out now, now that I've gotten to know some fellow academic, that actually my level wasn't drastically far below what is common for an academic at my level in Old English, but I still couldn't have read Beowulf just picked it up and read it like I can now and so I got through the interview I won the scholarship and then I arrived um, to do my PhD and I essentially told my supervisor that I didn't have as good an ability as I might need to for the course and she said don't worry about it that's fine um, we didn't have formal study of old English but what we did is um, 
every week she gave me stuff to read. I went off, I read it, and then we came back and she would quiz me on it and we'd talk about it. So she made sure that I understood. The focus wasn't on, oh, do you know so-and-so conjugation or so-and-so grammatical rule? It was just, can you pick up an old English text? Tell me what's going on there. Great. And I think part of the problem was, though, that we stopped at prose texts um, because for the stuff that I'm because my PhD is more specifically focused on astronomy in Old English literature, and there aren't any, well, there's, there's one, but there's not very much like poetry about astronomy in Old English, it's all prose text. So as long as I was able to read the prose text, I'd be able to get by. And that's where I hit a massive okay plateau. Um, so for the first year of my PhD, I binge immersed in Old English with a similar process that I'd use for Latin, which is just start at whatever is the easiest and read your way up until you can read stuff that's harder. And I, I remember the day, in fact, I went to my library and I took out every prose book in Old English which didn't have a facing page translation. Because That's actually one of the things that I think contributed the most to me actually developing an ability in Old English. I think the vast majority of people who should have an ability in an Asian language but don't, like Latin or Greek or whatever, and they have a degree in classics, it's because they've sort of convinced themselves that they can read Latin ancient Greek because they can make their way through Virgil or something with a facing page translation. And I think that gives you a big false sense of security in a way when you do it, because let's say you're looking for line 25, right? And you, you come across something you don't understand in line 25 and you look it up in the facing page translation. It's not separated line by line normally. So you have to read through a paragraph, skim through a paragraph to find where you're at, read the sentence where it's at to get the meaning. And I think, at least in my experience, you're so competent in your native language that just by skimming it, you may have read like half the page while trying to find the answer to the one thing. And also, once you find the answer, your mind switches off trying to analyze the language. You're like, right now I know what line 25 says, I can move on. You don't stop to think, okay, but why does line 25 work the way that it does? And that leads people to a false sense of security. Mary Beard, a famous professor of classics here in the UK, She's um, said in interviews and she's even written an article about how one time she had to read some Latin that had not been translated and she'd never seen before from some Renaissance scholar for a project she was working on. And she found that she just couldn't. She didn't understand the Latin there. Um, and it's not just her who's like this. Many, most people, I would say, most professors of classics and Latin, increasingly, unfortunately, even Old English, um, they can translate Latin, Old English, Old Norse. And that's what they do. So when they're writing a paper and they're analyzing a particular stanza of Hovermore in Old Norse, they'll do a close reading of that stanza of Hovermore and they'll read the Old Norse version for that. But they'll read the rest of the text in their native language for the most part. So I think this is a real problem within my field. Um, there's a lot of texts as a result of this which are understudied because they've not been translated yet and nobody knows about them. Like my favorite Latin poet is St. Eugenius of Toledo, who was extremely influential. Like his poetry was copied and recycled for centuries after his death in the Visigothic period. And very few people know about him because his poetry has not yet been translated into English, except for like one or two poems have been exerted here and there. Um, and I think his work might've been translated into modern Spanish, but I'm not sure. Um, and he's a very interesting poet, extremely gay, very campy, very fun. Um, and I mean that in all senses of the word. And it's a shame, in my opinion, that nobody gets to know of him because of this trend of trusting a translation as if it's good enough 
to replace particularly poetry in the original language because there's so much of poetry that's wrapped up in the peculiarity of the language that gets lost you know in a translation sorry i've rambled on for ages now yeah people are not aware that <clears throat> a lot of ancient languages that do have a uh, large corpora a lot of it's untranslated uh, you know a lot of latin it's more than just the classics there's medieval poetry mm. um and a lot of this is just not out there in english or any other language um so no, there exactly. is value in learning uh, a dead language especially one like old english or, or latin that has a decent amount of literature okay so i would actually say for old english and this is going to be controversial um everything has already actually been translated to my knowledge in old english mm -hmm. um one of the only bits of old english text which doesn't have <clears throat> a published translation available is are some Oh goodness, I can't remember the specific name of it, but they're like some versions of texts from Middle Earth which Tolkien himself wrote in Old English. And part of them were incorporated in his later editions into the Silmarillion, but obviously in like a modern English version. But the original versions were published by his son Christopher Tolkien, and they have not been provided with a facing page English translation. And so uh Ty's Pork, who is a um professor of Old English at the University of Leiden, he actually sets students' texts from that for their exams in Old English because every other text, they can just look up and find a translation online and cheat, but they can't for Tolkien. So um, that's good. And this is going to be maybe like my equivalent of, you know, that video where Matt's like done his Japanese journey and he's talking about it and he's like a little bit bitter about it from mm. West Japan. Because... Um, you know, I have put ages into learning Old English, and this is all of the poetry that there is in Old English, mm -hmm. like six books, literally. And all of these books have been translated. These are very old editions that I have. And if you're very generous, you can include Old Saxon into your mix, because that's, if you understand Old English, you can understand Old Saxon. It's kind of like Danish and Swedish level of difference. So you don't have that much to read. A lot of it's boring and actually that changes the kinds of methods with which you can learn it as well because with any modern language you can turn, put your life into the, that language in a way that you really can't for old english and you can even do that to a greater extent for some ancient languages like you know i've been to parties where people are speaking latin you can go to israel right and they're speaking something that's pretty similar to biblical hebrew um but if you're bored with reading epic poetry in Old English, uh, you have, and if you're, if you're just bored of medieval stuff in general, there's nothing else you can do. Whereas I can play shooter games in French or German or whatever. So, or I can watch anime in Spanish. So you're, if you, you can get bored when doing mm. Old English. And so I think that one of the refill adages, so to say, of, you don't get bored in language, you get bored of the content. Like that can, it, it can not work sometimes in Old English because you can legitimately, I think, get bored of the content. Like I'm doing a PhD in this stuff. I love it, but I don't want to only read medieval stuff literally all the time, every second of every day. You know, I want to do other things, experience other aspects of life. So yeah, I think you have to be realistic in that, in the sense when you're learning these languages of, you have to be aware that, you're not going to want to immerse to the level that will propel you forward. And that's okay. You can take your time. And with Old English in particular, I think it's a bit of a trap, so to speak, with the uh, ancient languages in that 
it is by far the easiest for a modern native English speaker to get into. But it, you'll hit an okay plateau very quickly. And really, the only way to effectively get past that plateau is doing a lot of very deliberate and intense vocab study, because the difference between poetry vocabulary and prose vocabulary is massive. And most poetic vocabulary you won't encounter very often or at all in prose texts. So it's hard to pick it up from just immersion. And the syntax is quite different, although if you're familiar with Latin already, that's not too bad. And then there's such a high density of poetic vocabulary in, say, Beowulf, that you won't be able to get through five lines without having to encounter, you know, maybe half or 40% of the words being poetic vocabulary words. So if you don't know those words, you have to be comfortable looking up every other word, or you spend a lot of time learning vocabulary, which is what I did. And I ended up with arguably a bit of an unhealthy relationship with space repetition systems, because I found that that actually did enable me to um, understand these poetic texts a bit better. So you need to be careful about developing bad and unhealthy habits when it comes to that, because deliberate vocab study, whether that's through WordList or an SRS, it's your only way out, but that may not be a desirable way out of the problem of bridging the gap between prose text and poetic text, so to speak. And also, quite frankly, with the Old English, the poetry is what's fun and interesting to read for the most part. There are some interesting prose texts, but not as much, you know. So it's a real conundrum for learners. You mentioned that you have an unhealthy relationship with SRS, and I'm curious about that. So um, I know that you're a big, huge fan of Memrise, and do yes. you want to elaborate on how you use Memrise to learn Old English? Yes, definitely. So um, what I did on Memrise was I just downloaded a bunch of courses in Old English. Bear in mind, by the time I started to memorize, I wish I'd started it sooner, frankly. Um, it was when I had hit my okay plateau in Old English. So I immersed in the first year of my PhD, hit an okay plateau, and was only reading prose text. And I sort of just wrote off poetry. I was like, poetry is too hard. I don't need it for my research, blah, blah, blah. And funny enough, right now I'm writing a chapter of my PhD, which is specifically on poetry. So. <laughs> I was wrong. And then um, finding that version of Japan, finding Refold, really changed my standards for what I consider fluent and mastery of a language. So I wanted to get to that level. And so I downloaded a bunch of courses on Memrise. Now, the problem with Memrise is they do have their in-house courses, and I haven't tried them because they're mostly for modern languages. Um, but members can create their own courses. And so I was faced with two options. I, ha I could either make my own course and do the vocabulary with that, or I could use pre-made courses. And quite frankly, I didn't want to make my own course. And loads of people told me I should, because it would just take a lot of time um, for the amount of words I want to know. And I would much rather just take advantage of something that somebody has also put time and effort into making and use that. The problem is, however, not all courses on Old English or Memorize or even Latin are created equal, and many of them have a lot of mistakes. One of the worst ones is because they're clearly made by students who are revising for their exams, 
but those students don't know the difference in how words are presented in Old English. So sometimes they will present, what I'll say is like when you see a word presented, you normally assume it's in the nominative case, which is the subject case. I think that's true for most inflected languages. Like you wouldn't expect to, for the dictionary entry of a word in German to be the genitive form, right? That would be very weird. Um, and even for plurals, you'd expect the nominative form. And, uh, but students who are making their vocab list that they've been given by a teacher, they don't necessarily know this. So they will present an accusative or a genitive form of the word as just the word. And so if you learn that, you'll be, I guess, tricking yourself a bit because I think your brain could very easily start to think that that's the nominative form and it's not because of how that's how it's normally done. So I fortunately was able to use a lot more Old English courses on Memorize than I would recommend. So I've done courses on Memorize and I still revise them, which I would never recommend somebody to do because I was able to go through and select, don't teach me this word because I could identify that it's wrong. But you have to have a good level of Old English already to identify that. And um, I went and I did a ton. Like if I load it up on my phone, I think I've got like genuinely thousands of um, words in total. But that's the problem also is there's loads of redundancies because a lot of the courses you're doing, they'll have like 2,000, 1,500, 1,000 words. And most of them are sort of something like frequency lists. So you're getting the 2,000 most common Old English words. The problem then becomes though that you do get some differences in vocabulary between the two, right? Because one person's frequency list is going to have some different words than the others. And so you have to do a lot of redundant overlapping courses to get a wide spectrum of vocabulary. And I would estimate from the courses that I've got saved on my phone, I think I've got about 20 old English courses in total that I've done on my phone. I've really got obsessive. Um, I'd estimate I probably have about 6,000 unique words that are learned on the SRS there. One thing that is really good though um, for Old English and Memorize is the um, Society for Anglo-Saxon, Northern Celtic, Cambridge. They have put out their own courses, which are very good. And they have a vocabulary which is specific to particular poems, like The Wife's Lament or The Wanderer in Old English. So you can learn those words. And those courses are specifically for poetic vocabulary, which is quite useful. Although, funnily enough, the very last course that I did um, slapped me in the face a bit because it's a frequency list, the um, 500 most common Old English words. It includes a lot of poetic words though. And for some of the poetic words, it has a little bracket which tells you how often they're used. And I saw some word like uh, air for the wheel and it said something like, this word has been used two times in the Old English corpus. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> I know this one. That's so useful. I should have glad to, I'm glad to know that. And I know a lot of like hapax legomena in Old English, which is um, extremely words useless. That only, yeah, words that basically only occur one time. In a yes. Corpus. Nothing yeah. will make you feel more useless than having a in Yeah, I'm I'm not super into ancient languages, so I'm only vaguely familiar with the concept. But uh, it occurs a lot when like there's one recorded instance of a word, and that is that, and um, that's a whole other phenomenon, I guess. Uh, and sometimes there's debates about them about what these particular words mean. Um, like there's one in Old English, um, the form it occurs in is Teofanada, uh, which would be like the past, uh, first and third person 
past singular of the verb. Some the verb would be something like teofanon or teofanion. And my personal theory is that it comes from the Greek theophania, which is like manifestation of God. And it's a verb borrowed into Old English to refer to like God causing something to come into being in the world. But that's my personal theory. It's not proven. I can't sort of cite that, you know? Mm. So going back to memorize, why memorize over Anki? And what caused this sort of uh, addiction to binging flashcards? <laughs> yeah, so memorize over Anki was because I did try Anki back in the day. I even, back when I was studying Greek, I made my own deck for Greek. Um, the problem is I can't trust myself. Um, with Anki, you know, you determine whether you've passed a word or not. And if I even vaguely knew a word, I'd be like, yeah, I passed that, it's fine. And I knew that that wasn't going to work. Whereas on Memrise, if you type in the wrong answer, it fails you, you don't have the choice. Um, so that was really good. Something that also has saved my life in um, Memrise is that they have a speed review function. And for that function, you get, you get the word and you get four different other sides of the flashcards and you select the right one out of those four. Um, now, obviously this isn't as effective for learning language, but you can do it really fast. So I can do about 150 words in 10 minutes revising it this way. And I don't think it's nothing. I think it's certainly quite useful to uh, give yourself some, like a warm up for the language and to revise a lot of words quite quickly. So that's how I tend to do my revision. Part of the reason Memorize became as much of an addiction as it is, is because I realized recently, I love number go up. I know it's silly, <laughs> I know it sounds like a monkey, but I'm like, the number is higher now than it was before. <laughs> I'm really excited. Um, I recently downloaded um, this boba tea simulator game. It's literally just a clicker game. We have a boba tea store and you get more clients and the number goes up. And I got very excited about that. <laughs> And I think Memrise, like, scratches that itch uh, in a productive way for language learning. So there's that. And also part of it was that I allowed Memrise to be an exception to my no English rule. So I have a no English rule for my language study where I did not use facing page translations. And I almost never use translations at all. And I think that's the reason I got as good as I did. The main reason, really. And then... I also do this for um, modern languages because like, I don't like telling people that I speak a bunch of languages. What I do is I, I say, I, I know Latin and Greek to a decent level and I use those to understand like French, Spanish, Italian, German, whatever. And I started developing my own personal method for understanding Spanish and Portuguese or whatever from my knowledge of Latin, back in high school even, and I've carried it on over these years. But as you can imagine, that requires a bit of maintenance, a bit of contact with the language here and there. So I set a rule for myself of, say, when I'm watching Netflix, nothing in English except when I'm doing Memorize, except when I'm reviewing my flashcards. Because for the most part, I can't, like, watch something that's in my target language in the background, so to speak. I can't watch a show in Spanish and do Memorize on my phone and follow along with the story. So English content I was allowed to watch when... I was doing Memorize, and I think I developed a very positive association with it as a result. Yes, it did mean that my focus when I was doing Memorize was a bit less, but I was doing so much of it and so often, like, at its worst, it became, like, two hours 
a day, roughly, maybe one and a half hours to two hours minimum every day, just to review all of the cards that I had. And then, and I recently massively restructured my relationship to it in a, what I think is a much healthier way. So that's good. And I use that time to watch, you know, English stuff like memorize and to watch political streamers that I enjoy and this kind of stuff. And so I think because of that, I developed a very positive association with memorize that maybe want to keep going and it's easier as well to just like do some flashcards rather than the really hard work of figuring out complicated grammatical passages you know yeah that sounds par for the course for for srs and i think you're right um memorize is gamified and, you know mm. never go up and there's colors <laughs> yeah there's colors and points and uh used to be that you would water your plants. I don't know if you still do that. Yes. Yeah, a yeah, little, little emoji. And I, I sound like such a simpleton, but it's it's fun. You know, it's nice. Um, and I remember, and actually, I'll be honest, I still really strongly feel this way. Um, in Matt vs. Japan's video on the SRS Endgame, he talks about how during his pathological relationship with Anki, he sort of thought, you know, if he kept going, you would never need a dictionary again. And... The thing is, for Japanese, that's a Filipino, Mandarin, any modern language, that probably isn't possible, right? There's probably far too many words that you could actually learn a dictionary in your lifetime. Um, but for Old English, it probably is plausible. Um, and certainly for poetic vocabulary, there's you could certainly memorize every single word that's in the poetic corpus in Old English. And I, I experienced such great gains from memorize that I developed a lot of faith in it. What actually started off my faith in Memorize was um, I was studying Old Norse during my second and third year of my PhD. And I was studying it for like a year by reading through a textbook. And also I went to an Old Norse reading group at my university and we would you know, translate a passage each week and then read it out. And it was a reading group for Old Norse. And I, but I genuinely didn't have much reading ability in Old Norse until I downloaded a course with 2,500 words in Old Norse and Memorize learned it all and then I was like wow I can actually just pick up Old Norse and you know I still need to look up some words but I can I can read it I can get through an Old Norse text this is amazing and then when I started doing poetic vocabulary in Old English I was like wow like I went from not being able to read Beowulf to being able to read Beowulf this is pretty huge and I kind of don't need a dictionary by this stage like I find that maybe every 100 to 200 words of poetry I need to look up a word that's pretty light, you know, that's an easy amount to have to do. And that is thanks to Memorize at the end of the day. So I'm too grateful. And one last thing actually is I'm very slowly learning ancient Greek, um, which in terms of grammar, I mostly already understand because it's similar to Latin. And that's the thing actually with all of the ancient Indo-European languages is if you're fluent in Latin, most of the grammatical structures will be at least somewhat familiar to you. Like, you know, Old English accusatives work the same way as they do in Latin, as they do in Greek, etc. probably Sanskrit, you know. So you, I have a good grammatical foundation in Greek. And then I downloaded a course which has every single word in the Greek New Testament. I finished learning that like over a year ago. And I've been slowly just doing 30 flashcards a day, reviewing it. And now over half the cards are reviewed. I find that for, usually I can pick up the, old, the New Testament, sorry, and just read it in ancient Greek. Uh, sometimes I need to look up words when I do that, but um, I can understand it. And that's only from doing five minutes of memorize every day. So 
you know, I say it's pathological, but it also gives a lot of gains, I think, Memorize does, particularly for ancient languages where you don't have as many good means of immersion as you do for modern languages. Like you like you have so much audiovisual content in Mandarin Japanese that you can pick up words from context from watching TV shows and that you really can't for Greek and Latin and Old English. Um, everything you're going to be doing in these languages is reading text with like very small exceptions, mostly with Latin and Greek. So I think some degree of focused vocabulary is necessary and Memorize allows you to do that in an easy gamified way and you get results. You can't contest the results. Now, you've mentioned, uh, we've mostly been talking about Old English here, but not all, quote unquote, ancient languages are made equal, right? So you kind of held up the whole entire poetic <laughs> corpus of Old English. It's like, you know, six, seven books. Um, with Latin, the corpus is much larger. There's just a lot more content, especially if you include medieval Latin mm. in, in there. Uh, and jumping into old English, I imagine when you started, they didn't have as much CI content. So I think they've just come out with some CI in old English. Mm. So the CI content is um, learning old English with Leopold, which I'm told has some mistakes, but I don't care. Like it's cute. It's an adorable book with like, bio tapestry style drawings and you go with a family through old english it's beautiful it's charming everyone should learn old english with <laughs> their first guide um after that by the way it's not necessarily comprehensible input but i would recommend um michael droughts um goodness i think it's easy old english book is my professor michael droughts book he's also the one who quick and easy old english by michael drought that's the one amazing book He's also the one who has done the Anglo-Saxon Allowed project, which is where he's recorded all of the Old English poetry except Beowulf and put it up for free online. So that's audible input for you if you want it in Old English. Um, but yeah, no, like you said, there's some in Old English. And I like to use Learn Old English with Eowyn as an example of how easy it can be for modern English speakers because I would say that Learn Old English with Eowyn is sort of like how most modern English speakers can understand simple Afrikaans, you know. It's simple old English and, you know, this is min hus, this is min doctor, this is min weef. You know, people can know, you know, min nama is bell. People can understand what these things are in modern English. And I like that because it gives them the confidence to be like, oh, I know this, it's not a different thing. It's my own language. I can go for it if they're a native English speaker. Um, they will run into the OK Plateau that's surmountable. That's fine. You know? Yeah. It's a little bit disingenuous when we see quotes, the average non-academic sees a quote in old English. It's usually like <laughs> Beowulf or something, which is poetry at the end of the day. It's, it's an epic. Um, and that's not simple old English. Like you said, this is me, we've, you know, um, which is relatively intelligible to a modern English speaker. 100%. And like, this is my main pet peeve with ancient languages because classics departments in particular, they do this. They're like classical Latin, you know, the, basically the Republic, um, you know, early and late Republican period in Rome when Cicero and Virgil were writing. This is the only Latin that is worth learning and everything else um, 
after that is of a lesser quality. Now, I will concede to them the only point that they're correct on, which is that, you know, if we take uh, Matt versus Japan's m motto of only consuming content by natives for natives, when you get to, like, from 500 onwards, they're not native speakers of Latin for the most part uh, in medieval Europe. So there's that. So they're not, and even monks aren't using it probably in their daily lives all that much for communicative purposes. But I think it would be foolish to imagine that all medieval Latin and poetry is not fluent and does not reach similar literary standards as ancient Latin like Bede, as massively fluent in Latin, produces great poetry, etc. It was the literary language of its time, in the same way as we have second language English writers to this day who write just as well as native English writers. And I, th I don't think anybody would plausibly, you know, take Slavoj Žižek, right, and say, oh, don't read him because he's a non-native English speaker and therefore for worse quality. And more importantly, like, the way that classics departments say that only classical Latin is worth studying is like taking people in the English refold server and saying, Dickens and Char um, Mary Shelley, all this kind of stuff. This is the only English that's worth reading. And until you can read this, don't even bother. There's, no, there's nothing that's worth pursuing in English for you. And you have to study for many, many years until you're able to decode it. You have to learn this like set of codes. And then once you've learned the set of codes, you can like look up the codes in a table to slowly translate a page of Charles Dickens, and that's your English immersion for the day. Nobody would learn English. That sounds awful. Um, and by presenting Old English as like, here's Beowulf, because that's, that's all it is, right? Everyone, the only thing people want to read in Old English is Beowulf, and to be fair, it's the most exciting text that we have in Old English. Um, but if it's presented to people as like, this is why you learn Old English, and then they start reading and they struggle with Beowulf, because they will, it's very difficult. I, I struggled with it for a very long time. Then nobody's going to put in the effort to try to learn Old English, do you know what I mean? Um, so I would much rather we redirect our focus to comprehensible content in Old English, which there is a good deal of. And when it comes to sort of... Um comparing ancient languages back to comparing like English and Latin. With Latin, there's a very good series of textbooks, Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, which is a lot of CI content. Yes, but it's a really good video by the YouTuber found in antiquity about Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. And she raises, I think, some very valid concerns with this book, namely in the way people approach it. She she says how this book on its own is not enough to get people to a good reading ability in Latin, and it's also not even enough to get people to a good uh, conversational Latin ability. And she's observed this apparently in uh, at Conventicula herself. So I think it's a great resource, uh, LLSPI, and I would recommend it for everyone, but just not as the only thing that you do or the main thing that you do. Like you need to do a lot of things, a lot of immersion with Latin. But you're right in that there's tons of comprehensible input for Latin. There's also a community I, of people who I've it. seen Minecraft YouTubers who talk while they, they do Minecraft in Latin. 
Oh yeah, uh, like I was talking something you don't have with. Yeah, which is not something you have with English or Old English, rather, um, to the same degree. Um, yeah, and um, there are news stations in Latin, you know, that have weekly or or so on and so forth, like spoken mm. Latin news. So it's not a super fair comparison. It's sort of like, I guess, in a modern equivalent would be like I don't know, learning learning some regional language and comparing it to, to modern English. Like they're both modern living languages. And I found um, some regional languages in the Philippines with like 10,000 speakers. I found YouTube channels in those languages, but the content is usually not super great and um, not great audio equipment. And like, it's not like it's, I'm, I'm, I'm finding books. I'm finding like somebody's random blog from you know when they were in high school it happens to be in one of these languages like there is content but it's not quite the same whereas with with latin you've got the 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 a modern community of speakers um who actively use the language uh and yeah it's just interesting to me minecraft videos in latin is not something i would have imagined 10 years ago there's a twitch streamer who streams games in latin although one thing i will say um to be mean to the Latin speakers, because even though I am one, so I'm allowed to, because um, I'm, I'm being very cruel today, is um, a lot of them are come at Latin with this rather humanist mindset, and they're sort of uncritical of the really classist prejudices behind a lot of it. Like, there's a Latin documentary on YouTube called uh, Humanitas, and if you type in Humanitas, and then one slash 11, you'll find it's into parts on YouTube. And it's a documentary about one of the first spoken Latin conventions that happened in Europe. And, oh my goodness, when they're talking to people about why they're learning Latin, it's like, because Latin is the language of our great Western civilization, and it's the best of the best, and we need kids these days are speaking rubbish, blah, blah, blah. Um, I really despise it. Um, and I normally tell people um, that... Anyone who speaks Latin as well as I do or better is annoying, probably. Or like, just a bit of a classist person. And this isn't true. Like, Scorpio Marzianus seems amazing. Love him. Uh, YouTube channel. But, you know, um, Alexis Comenius, I think is his name on YouTube. He does vlogs in Latin. And it's literally vlogs about, our oh, kids these days need to pull their pants up. And atheists are so this, blah, blah, blah. Values are declining in Western society. Like, as a very personally, as a liberal, like, um, SJW type person, not actually, but um, it's not the most appealing. And one of my first contacts with, like, not spoken Latin, but the use of Latin as a communicative language in the present day, um, is way back in undergrad, I subscribed to an email list of people speaking in Latin. And I very quickly tried to unsubscribe because, one, about half of the emails they sent back and forth uh, had the title uh, Cardigendum or Cardigenda, which is like things to be corrected. And they were just nitpicking each other's Latin grammar mistakes, which was like so uninteresting. And then the rest of the time, they were talking about how like multiculturalism in Europe is bringing the destruction of the West or whatever. And I was just like, okay, great. <laughs> I could have heard this at home. <laughs> you know? So um, I didn't like properly start using latin until i got into a space where i think that they actually did something which is quite clever although it can lead to pitfalls which is that they didn't allow you to correct others 
unless they asked for corrections, which led to, you know, some poor Latin being used, but it also meant that half of the text box wasn't corrections of other people's mistakes, and you could have actual conversations about actual things. Um, so that was quite good in terms of the spoken I think you see that language. even with living languages, where second language speakers enjoy flexing on others. Um, they like to correct people and, and show off their usage as being, you know, quote unquote, more correct. Um, and I, I'm not surprised that the Latinist community is a little bit off. Um, I think it's a certain type of person who is attracted to Latin, even among people who are rank beginners. Uh, you'll, you might know that Duolingo came out with a, uh, a Latin course. And Duolingo sort of has an SJW type bent. Like one of the uh, one of the sentences they teach you is like uh, "weir maritum habit," which is you know the man has a husband. Um, and you know they were under a lot of fire for including that type of language because again the people who are attracted to it tend to be sort yeah. of. Uh, it is something we could probably outside of the scope of the refold podcast, but I imagine a lot of old English is the same. Um, I imagine these ancient Germanic languages tend to attract a sort of far-right type personality. Um, ancient, glorious Germanic past, or in the case of Latin, the, the ancient Western civilization. <laughs> yes. and, um, yeah, I'm not, not at all surprised. But uh, looking here, what are what's your experience with, like, uh, well, with ancient languages in general, like how did, that's just such an interesting thing to get into. So it sounds like you do have an interest in some modern languages. Um, I think like modern high German, uh, modern Spanish. Uh, what, what sort of spawned this interest? And your interest is also, I don't want to call it narrow, <laughs> but <laughs> it seems to me to be kind of narrow to, to Europe. Um, it doesn't sound like you're out there reading ancient, you know, Syriac, or you're not out there yeah. reading ancient Hebrew or, or anything? Um. So yes and no. So I'm very slowly learning modern Mandarin. And I was starting to learn um, Mandarin before I started my PhD. And then I just needed to learn other languages for that PhD. So that got sidetracked. And I'm very slowly getting into it now. And long term in my life, I want to, because it takes a long time to do it for any one language, I want to achieve proper like C1 reading fluency in um, Old English, Old Norse, Latin, Ancient Greek, and eventually Classical Chinese. So I am going to do that. And I've also dabbled in learning Coptic. Um, but you're right, it's predominantly an interest focused on Europe. And I guess I always tell people that I've got two main obsessions and my life revolves around them to some extent or another. Um, I guess we could maybe add language as a third, but I normally use language to supplement the other two. So I'm obsessed with like social studies and social sciences. And um, for the most part, like I got my fill of that in terms of formal education during my um, bachelor's degree. And then I went on to do my master's in medieval studies and um, now I'm doing my PhD in medieval literature. So um, that's how I got into it. And I've just always, since I was a kid, been fascinated by the middle ages and the ancient world and the ancient past and uh, ancient Europe in particular. I think frankly, a lot of it is like, 
I was super into Morrowind and World of Warcraft as a kid and a teen. And um, it's that like high fancy European aesthetic. And when I read medieval poetry to this day, it really feels like I'm, I get some of that same excitement as when you're exploring Mulgore for the first time in World of Warcraft. It feels like going into a fantasy world, so to speak. So medievalism is escapism for me. That makes sense. So do you have any plans to maybe branch out? So uh, for me, I personally think the ancient quote unquote Near East is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it would be interesting to, to learn, you know, Hebrew or um, I don't know, Aramaic or something like that and sort of experience, um, you know, the ancient Near East. Mm. Um, so I would like to learn Coptic one day, probably. Um, and for me, there's something very cool about being able to speak a language which is ultimately descended from what the pharaohs spoke. That's really cool. And uh, as far as ancient Near East, yeah. Um, so I come from a Roman Catholic family, and um, my mother in particular is really into like um, all this biblical stuff, and she'll call me up once in a while to ask me if so-and-so actually means what it said, what this pastor said it did in the original Greek or Hebrew. And I'm like, I can tell you for the Greek. I can't tell you for the Hebrew. Stop asking me for the Hebrew. <laughs> but one day I, um, I should like to, it probably would be very interesting and useful because then you'd have a complete chain, so to speak. Um, one thing I quite like doing in my own field is exploring the origin of a story uh, so saints' lives in medieval Europe. Normally, the original is written in Greek, then it gets translated into Latin, then Old English, etc., etc. So with biblical stuff, if you could start with um, Hebrew for the Old Testament, and then there's a Greek of the Septuagint and the Latin, etc., that would be quite cool to be able to fully understand where it comes from. And also, I'm sure there's tons of concepts in the Old Testament which, like, are encapsulated within the language itself. And... Um, so I'm, I'm an atheist personally, but one of my best friends is a Catholic monk. And, you know, sometimes he you know, tries to convince me of God, et cetera, in the Catholic Church. And, like, one of the things he points to is, oh, all of these prophecies in the New Old Testament get fulfilled in the New. And I'm like, well, how do, how do you know for sure? <laughs> like, how do you know that somebody hasn't just, like, badly or, like, poorly translated a certain part of it? And so it would be nice one day to actually be able to read the Old Testament in its original Hebrew and Aramaic and know with confidence what it's saying but I know because it took me like a decade to have a workable level of Latin it would take me probably the same amount of time for Hebrew so I'm doing Mandarin first like classical Chinese so that's going to take probably at least five years after my PhD is done so I will at one point it'll just take some time yeah I think it'll be interesting worth branching out of uh, uh things outside of um sort of quote-unquote western culture uh, so you are interested in some modern languages. Um, and I think you mentioned you also were interested in revivals. So you mentioned Hebrew being spoken mm -hmm. in like Israel and, you know, it's sort of a revived language. Um, but there is also a movement among people to revive Gothic. Do you want to talk about sort of the Gothic revival movement? Yeah. So I was, um, quite heavily involved in the gothic revival movement and then um we basically I just got into it because we became friends we would study gothic and talk about that and other ancient germanic languages together 
within the community, my role quickly became like the historian because I could actually read the Visigothic literature that was written in Latin and they couldn't. So I could like tell them bits about Visigothic culture that are embedded within that literature corpus. It was really cool. Um, there is a community which tries to revive the Gothic language and use it as a spoken language of modern communication. Um, so the way they do this is they reconstruct words that are lacking in Gothic. Because of course, if you only have parts of the Bible in Gothic, you don't have enough words to communicate everything you might want. So they take Proto-Germanic words and they apply the same sound shifts that corresponded to Gothic to those, and then they reconstruct the words and they use them. Um, it's a small community. Um, so there is a Twitch streamer, I don't know if she still streams, called Amaya, who does videos, and she's got a YouTube channel as well, where she's done some videos on Gothic. So that's a good place to start. I actually translated my favorite computer game into Gothic back when I was involved in this community. And um, that's available if people want to, to download the code and use it. Uh, it's the Oxford Halley's translation of Gothic. Just type into YouTube and you'll be able to find it. Um, unfortunately, to my understanding, that initial community that I'm a part of is now shut down and they're no longer operating, at least not on that platform. There are Telegram groups for Gothic speaking and there's a couple of other places where you can chat to people in Gothic. Um, but it's harder to get into now than it was back when I was doing it. Very interesting. Yeah, and unfortunately, unlike Hebrew, which is a successful case of language revival, mm. Hebrew actually had a corpus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. You know, not just Old Testament stuff, but uh, Mishnaic Hebrew, medieval Hebrew, uh, which was sort of existing in the same way that Latin has existed as a literary language to some degree up until very recently. Or, you know, they're still mm -hmm. living Latin. Um, with Gothic, we pretty much only have a very sort of Hellenized version of the language in the Bible, which probably not the best for reconstructing actual colloquial gothic as it was spoken no so um Alaric call has translated alice in wonderland for instance into gothic to create some comprehensible input that's not the bible but you can tell in reading it that he's an old english person who is doing this and so he has constructs which are very common in old english but I've not seen in Gothic when I've read the Bible in Gothic um, and such like this. So there's not, like with all these ancient languages, um, even to some extent, including Latin, there's a lot of bad advice out there. And so you have to know to look out for that. And unfortunately with Gothic, it's like there's, I think there's a Gothic Wikipedia page and it's also quite bad. So you're know, slim pickings, let's say, in terms of reviving the Gothic language, unfortunately. Oh, very interesting. So we are nearing time, but before we go, what it would what would your sage advice be to budding uh, people who are interested in I don't know ancient languages and philology and such? Mm, I would say um, download some vocab decks, learn as much vocabulary as you can, uh, pick up the grammar as you go. Do not, under any circumstances. Think of the language as some bloody code where you're like inputting little mathematical rules to figure out which translation to give for a thing. Um, learn to understand it. If there's comprehensible 
spoken input or division input for your language. Use that and just start with reading whatever you can and like easy stuff and keep reading that until you're bored to death of it and then go on to something a little bit harder and keep going up and up and eventually you'll do it and just love the process. One thing I would say that's really important and I try to emphasize it on my channel is that even in texts which are like simpler, there's lots of, because this is stuff that's written in a language that people in the Middle Ages or the ancient world were actually using in their day-to-day -day lives, you can learn all sorts of really subtle things about how they thought about the world, how they saw the world from a list of kings or anything else. And so you can enjoy those early stages where you can only understand simple texts much more. Um, start with chronicles, by the way, like annals, stuff like that, because normally it's like, so-and-so killed so-and-so, so-and-so ruled for so-and-so, but there's little bits extra in there, so you get your T plus one and you'll eventually grow in that direction. And yeah, for everybody listening, check out Bell's channel, The Philological Bell on YouTube. Yes. Um, and what exactly do you do on your channel? I know that you've got some like analyses of like some ancient literature yeah, so I basically set up my channel as providing the resources for medieval languages and medieval Latin that I wish I had had when I was um, going up. So I used some Latin resources on YouTube, but there wasn't that much. So I do um, literary and linguistic analyses sort of combined in my thing. I've got a color-coded gloss that I use to indicate the case system of Latin, Old English, Norse, etc. on my channel. And I also talk about the cultural background between these texts. The way most of my videos are set up is that they're like recorded classrooms. And the idea is that if you want to translate, for instance, um, Hrafnsmal, which is a Old Norse poem about King Harold Finehair, you can pause the video, use what's on the screen, write out your translation, and then watch the video back and hear what I say and mark it. So I've said on my channel is like self-teaching materials for the medieval languages that I have learned. And I've also got some stuff about paleography on there as well um, for people who want to learn manuscript skills. So I hope that may be useful to some people. Yeah, I think it will be. Belle, thank you so much for coming on. And Absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the Refold podcast. Yeah, this was a great episode. I think you're our first sort of, um, I don't know, medieval medievalist. <laughs> I don't know what to call uh, Ancient language person uh, to have on. And it was certainly highly informative. Absolute right. pleasure. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Refold Podcast. If you're watching the live premiere, you're in luck. Right as it ends, we have an after party over on the Refold Central Discord server. Come join us by using refold.link forward slash join and chat about the episode. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to hear more, you can find older episodes to listen to on YouTube and Spotify. Let us know what you thought about the video by liking and leaving a comment below. Do you have suggestions for upcoming visitors or requests for particular topics? Please feel free to reach out to me on Discord at georgepig hashtag 5413 or via email at clayton at refold.la. Thank you all for watching and or listening, and I'll see you next week.